folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. It's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is October 24th. I'm sorry, October 24th, 2014, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, your chance to call in your calls to the Think Line, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. Remember, we have the Think Line because we encourage you to think here at the Survival Podcast. For those of you without letters on your dial for whatever reason, that number is 866 866- Six five eight four four six five. Don't expect to get me answering the phone when you call in, though. It's pre-recorded because it's a podcast, not the radio. That means you'll get a voice message. Leave your uh, question or comment, and try to do it in under two minutes. Make your point or ask your question first, and follow with the details. You'll be a lot more likely to get on the air that way, and your call will go smoother. Trust me, I am a professional at this. With that, before we get to your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day, number one today, KnifeKits.com. I think making knives is a cool project for a father and son or a father and a daughter or a mom and a daughter for all that matter. You know, girls can make knives too. They really can. They're probably probably better at it than men, maybe. They have better taste and design. Just saying. Anyway, check out KnifeKits.com. You can learn how to make knives there, starting with very simple kits. Or if you're an advanced bladesmith, you can get some really cool exotic materials Check them out today, knifekits.com. Next up today, Harvest Eating. You know what I just got done eating for breakfast? Two handmade sausage patties where I made my own sausage. Do you know how I learned how to make that sausage? Chef Keith Snow. And I cooked that sausage in a cast iron skillet. You know who cooks with cast iron? Chef Keith Snow. And then I made two duck eggs. I don't know if Keith knows much about duck eggs, but I made two duck eggs over easy. I set them on top of that sausage. It was made with Keith's Northern Italian seasoning mix. Man, what a great way to start off the day. That's just one of the many skills you can learn from Chef Keith when it comes to cooking, how to make your own sausage. Cooking is a life skill, and it is a prepper skill. If you've ever lived off MREs for six months, like I did at one time in my life, you've learned that food preparation is something you want to be good at. It's a skill you want to develop. Chef Keith can help you with that. He also has great seasonings and products. Check out the new curry chicken seasoning. That is freaking phenomenal. Lots of great stuff over at HarvestEating.com, including an awesome podcast, a great YouTube channel, and more. And we will actually hear from Chef Keith today. I'm going to warn you, when you hear him come on, I'd eat first. You're probably going to end up, as usual, being hungry. With that... Let's uh, remind you guys real quick about the Member Support Brigade. You get discounts to Harvest Eating, KnifeKits.com, and many other great sponsors. And a lot of other companies that aren't actually sponsors of the show but are supporting vendors. You can find out more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. Help support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. And now, let us look at the year that was the episode. We have two segments today from Alex Shrugged over at TSPWiki.com. The year is 1452. The Great Slump, the Lousy Password, and China praying for the Grand Canal. Uh, the China one is actually really interesting because it's something you can still see evidence of still today. But I'm going to read The Great Slump, the Lousy Password, because I think I can give you a little bit more current event validity out of it. The Great Depression of the Middle Ages is called The Great Slump. Did you hear that? They had a Great Depression in the, in the Middle Ages. Yeah, depressions, recessions, not new. It's been around a long time. 
Just think about that. It began with a series of crop failures and livestock disease that led to a shortage of wool. This caused the cloth trade to drop off 35% to as much as 90% in some areas. This led to riots in England where the best wool comes from and the revolt of Ghent. Flanders where the best weavers work. The Weavers Guild declared a general strike last year. Duke Philip the Good of Burgundy has declared a war on the Weavers. They will hold him off using Mad Meg, a sister of Monster Meg, the monster cannon. Philip the Good will hang every enemy combatant he captures, except for a small company who gets the password makes it past the Burgundy troops. What was the password? Burgundy. <laughs> it reminds me of whenever I'm like in a trade show or something and I'm looking for a network to jump on and people have their own networks set up. If Usually if you try a couple of them and try password is the password, you can usually find a network you can jump on. Just a little, not really a hacker trip because that's, that's not really a hack. That's just stupidity being exploited. Anyway, why does the Duke of Burgundy care what happens in Flanders? Many of the aristocracy hold titles Based on marriages and inheritance, Philip the Good, also the Count of Flanders. Part of the reason for this revolt is a shortage in silver in the economy. Transactions use either coin or barter. And when there is a coin shortage, they use wool as the main barter item. With the current shortage of wool, you begin to see the problem. Wool is not just the material used for the workers to turn into cloth. Wool is money, too. How does one pay workers and buy supplies? Where is the money for financing farm plots that the yeomen need? What money can circulate when the economy breaks down into its most primitive forms? When even barter isn't working, riots ensue. So tells us Alex Shrugged in his take. My take by Jack Spierko. This is why, it's going to be hard for you to believe what I'm about to say, but this is why modern economics run by central banks like the Federal Reserve, aren't 100% bad or 100% wrong. See, here's the problem with conventional thinking of only gold and silver are money. Well, there's only so much gold and silver. And you can actually have an economy grow faster than a monetary supply. See, what people just refuse to understand, just refuse, and this is, this is it's, it's really sad, I'm not actually defending the Federal Reserve here in case you, you think I am, but those who are addicted to the metal, right? It's gold. Gold is money. Nothing else is money because I say so. Don't know jack shit about money. They don't know anything about money. If they knew what money was, they would never say something so stupid as only gold is money. Money is nothing but a symbol for energy used as a means of exchange, and it actually derives its value from the economy in which it circulates. And if you have an economy that grows in commodity and demand faster than monetary supply, you could actually end up with a money shortage. And even though there's plenty of stuff and plenty of activity and plenty of opportunity, the money itself chokes the economy because there's not enough of it. And people with lots of money at that time can use that money to control the economy. So the Federal Reserve made a deal with the United States. We will prevent this from happening. Just give us another way to completely control and manipulate the economy. The problem with fractional reserve is not so much in how it functions, but how loosely it functions and how controlled it is and how access to money is now sold. And what does a better job with this? Bitcoin and modern electronic currencies are a better alternative than gold or fractional reserve or paper script Because they're in infinitely fractional. Which means whenever the economy grows faster than the supply of money, 
we can make the, the supply of money stable by capping the total money at a single point and fractionalizing down, thereby creating a much more stable currency that doesn't rely on inflation for its very existence. Just saying, that's my take by Jack Spierko. And with that, let's take your first call today. Hey, Jack, this is Greg from Pennsylvania. My question today is related to, I have a 12 by 30 foot section of lawn. Actually, it was a landscaping area with a bunch of ornamentals and that ugly, uh, useless, black-dyed chip mulch. Uh, my question is, what am I looking to do with some good advice to prepare that for a good zone one, uh, looking ahead to a permaculture property? Um, should I try and remove as much of that dyed old wood chip mulch away? Um, I'm looking to sheet mulch possibly either now or in the spring. Is it better to do it now or in the spring? The further details on this is that we do live in the snow belt, so there will be significant moisture and heavy snow cover on this, uh, at least through the end of March or so. Uh, any thoughts or suggestions on that? Look forward to hearing your answer, and thanks for all you do. Bye. Well, the first thing is, yes, I would get rid of as much of the dyed wood chips as possible because we don't know what's in that dye. I, I would also, though, caution you not to become like a hypochondriac about it. I wouldn't be out there picking them up individually. I would just simply rake up that which is easily removed and do away with it. And 12 by 30 is not that big of an area. Uh, the, the good news is since it was covered with that, it's probably fairly bare ground. So what I would actually do is I'd begin this process as soon as possible, and then I would sheet mulch over a cover crop if that's what you really want to do. So what I would do right now is I would rake up the wood chips, and then I would rake up the dirt. And you might even put down a couple cups of uh, dried molasses uh, on top of it once you do that just to feed your soil organisms there. And then I would go in and I would put in a winter cover crop And I would probably at this point, since you're, you're planning on sheet mulching it and taking it to more of a, of a heavily managed system long term, put down annuals that are going to success out through the winter. And I would use particularly Caius oat, winter pea, daikon radish, and rye. That's the mix that I would recommend. You can do some other things too. It won't hurt anything, but those are the four that I would use. And again, it would be rye, winter pea, um, Caius oat, and daikon radish. And I would go pretty heavy on the daikon. Uh, you're just going to throw it and spread it out there. But if you could envision about having a daikon about every foot, uh, that would be about as much seed as I would use. If the ground is kind of crumbly and it's not real hard to do, it would even make sense for you to rake, not just to disturb the soil, but maybe rake a, a perimeter of like a berm around it, throw your seed down, and then take that excess dirt and sprinkle it back over the entire area to give the seed some cover. It's not a big area, so stick a, a sprinkler out there and water it every day unless it rains until it gets until it's nice and green and established and coming up don't go too heavy on your cover crop again spread this stuff out the mix i just gave you um three handfuls of that mix maybe four would cover an area that big let that come up 
in your climate, most if not all of it eventually will win or kill for you. It won't win or kill on the first frost, and it won't win or kill on light freezes, and it probably won't even win or kill on snow. But sooner or later, you're going to get a day that's down well below 20, and most of it's going to die. When it dies, you can either leave it alone and wait till spring, or if you get a nice Indian summer day when it's all kind of wilted and dead and what have you, you can go ahead and do your sheet mulching in the winter. I would sheet mulch with a layer of cardboard right on top of everything you've just planted. All that good stuff's down there, and then do whatever you want for sheet mulching. Whether I would, I'm moving more and more towards. If I'm going to sheet mulch, I want to do a, a layer of, of uh, like compost on top of it if I can get it at the time of the year I'm doing it. So a layer of compost, and again a couple handfuls of uh, dried molasses is wonderful stuff to stimulate the activity in the soil, and then a layer of cardboard on top of it. Uh, if this is going to be a zone one, if I'm doing like a zone two, zone three sheet mulch, I wouldn't mess with the cardboard. But a zone one, you want to really control what's there. Layer of cardboard, another layer of compost, a layer of straw, another layer of compost, another layer of straw. Do that as many times as you want. And you might want to come in then on a small area like that, get a truckload of a good quality soil mix, like a compost sand mixture. Put a couple inches deep of that on there and then top mulch it either with wood chips or straw. And if you do that midwinter after the winter kill, if you get that break and you can have a, you know, a couple days to do a project midwinter and then let it snow on top of that, man, by spring, that soil is going to be booming. If not, if you don't do it then, it's fine. Just let that winter cover crop die. Let it wilt down. Let the snow sit on top. It'll still be in great shape. And you can go ahead and do your sheet mulching in the spring. Either would work fine, but If I had the optimum opportunity, I would stage the materials because where you're at, you get really cold winters, but it's almost always the case that you get like a weekend or an Indian summer week up there in the Northeast. You know, one day there's two feet of snow on the ground. It's Christmas. Everything's frozen. Roads are frozen. I mean, I just remember this being the way it was. And a lot of times it's the week between Christmas and New Year's. Not every year, but sometimes it happens. It's weird, you know. Christmas Day, there's snow on the ground. December 27th, it's 60 degrees. You're walking around in a t-shirt. If I were afforded that opportunity, and my cover crop had come in good over a couple months up till then, and then been beaten down by snow, and I had the time and the materials, I would sheet mulch it right then. There's just so much food for soil life at that point. And in the spring... When you go and turn that over a little bit, put a, a spade into it and look at it, not only is it going to be well-structured, it's probably going to be oozing with earthworms. Just my thoughts. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. I met you over at Permethos Elisha Springs, and I told you that I had a poem for you. So here it goes. I curse you, Jack Spearco, for all that you've done. I curse you, Jack Spearco, for info and fun. I curse you, Jack Spearco, for Biltong and Mead, your input about politics and the planting of seeds. I curse you, Jack Spearco, for causing me to think about food, shelter, fire, safety, and drink. I curse you, Jack Spearco, for business ethics and needs. You, I've started a company. You planted that seed. I curse you, Jack Spearco, for the importance of knowledge, your thoughts about schools, and debt for my college. I curse you, Jack Spearco, for vendor discounts and more. Have you any idea how hard it is to leave the ready-made store? I curse you, Jack Spearco, for home-brewing beer, your insights on hunting and jerky from deer. I curse you, Jack Spearco, for interviews and reviews, the history segment, and ballistics news, too. 
I curse you, Jack Spierko, for food forests in my view. I planted a garden, and permaculture ensued. But I thank you, Jack Spierko, for showing a better way to live every moment and cherish each day. I thank you, Jack Spierko, for your service days. You've made your ancestors proud with the bricks that you've laid. I thank you, Jack Spierko, for what you have caused, a better life for me and for all those abroad. I thank you, Jack Spierko, for all the above. You do it all free for the world that you love. Jack, I am living that better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, thanks to you and this community. When I gave you the chutney at Ethos, that was half of my mission. After being just a small part of Elisha Springs, my mission is now done. Thank you. Scott Olson, also known as Far New Jersey. I've never been so happy to be cursed before. Uh, and seriously, it was great meeting you too, sir. I'm glad you're building something in your own life, and I hope more people in the audience every day are taking those steps in that direction. I want to let you know that, guys, sometimes I hear from people that basically are like, help us get started, and I... You know, I, I can't individually tell, especially people that don't even know what they want to do yet. They're just trying to figure it out. You've got to figure out your pathway for yourself in life. I put all this information that I can out there for people at no cost, honestly. We do the Members Brigade, but no one is forced or coerced to join that. Uh, and there is Five Minutes with Jack over at jackspirico.com. That's a podcast that's on permanent hiatus, but I've done over 100 episodes on that show. And I'll tell you what, those that want to start a business, I always have people saying, when are you going to bring back, when are you going to bring back five minutes with Jack? When are you going to bring back five minutes with Jack? The day someone comes to me and demonstrates to me they've implemented everything that was given away for free already on five minutes with Jack into their business and that they need more to get their business off the ground, I'll do it. Until then, it's on permanent hiatus. All the information's there. Everything you need to know to establish a business of your own is there. The ideas, what to do and how to implement them, that I leave on you for those that want a business. And for everybody, whether you want a business or not, I hope what we are doing is encouraging you toward greater liberty and freedom every day. And I know sometimes it may be, you may feel like Curse Jack has got all this stuff going on now. Hey, I'll tell you what, at the end of your life, when you're contemplating being a dash between two dates, you won't say, I wish I did less. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Brad in Virginia. I wanted to follow up on one of the, I think it was the last listener call show where the guy calling in was having some problems with his barley sprouting. Um, I also run the Dead Simple Fodder System and lately have been having issues with uh, the sprouting. Um, I noticed after the sixth day, it's not as much greenery or roots as it has been. Um, I noticed the weather has been much drier in my neck of the woods, also very windy, and I'm finding that there's the moisture level. Um, the fodder itself is drying out in the bucket a little bit more than it was uh, during the more humid times of year. So I just wanted to throw that out there and see if that was potentially an issue uh, with the caller and for anybody else uh, running that same system. So got to keep your uh, got to keep your moisture levels right. So, anyways, just want to throw that out there. Thanks, man. Keep doing what you're doing. Bye. For those not familiar with it, I have something called the Dead Simple Fodder System, and it's for sprouting barley. You could do other grains with it as well for feed for animals to improve uh, its nutritional quality, its palatability, its digestibility, and the overall quantity. So if I take and sprout barley, I can turn you know uh, a half a pound of barley into 
two to three pounds of feed or more. So it, it is a financial return as well by reducing the total cost of feed. And it's made up of a multi-bucket system. You put holes in the bottom and you soak barley for a day in a bucket without holes and you put it in a bucket and you keep adding buckets so that you so you have the barley germinate and grow out as many days as you want to get the type of fodder you like. When I do it for my chickens, I usually uh, take it out when it's just roots. The geese like it to be a little bit of green and grass. And I haven't actually been doing fodder lately, so I don't know what the ducks are going to think of it, but I, it's really time to start doing it again. I've got like four bags of barley sitting in the, the barn. I just need to find all the buckets that have been repurposed and put the system back together, which should take about, oh, five minutes to put back together once I find all the buckets. But the caller's right. Okay, so... It may be if you're having poor germination or growth rates with your dead simple system and you had previously had good uh, growth, it may be your fodder's drying out and maybe instead of doing a rinse in the morning and a rinse in the evening, you need to do one in the middle of the day or locate your fodder somewhere where it'll dry out less or how about this amazing idea? Get the lids for the buckets and just don't clip them on but just set them on the top of the bucket. If you're using a white bucket, there'll be plenty of light for uh, your fodder to uh, to grow with, and you could keep the lids on the buckets up until the point they're starting to put up shoots, and if you wanted more light to get a more green fodder, you could then remove the lid at that point, and by that point, there should be enough root mass to do a better job of holding on to the moisture. Like I said, it's a dead simple fodder system, and that means that troubleshooting it should be dead simple as well. Something as dead simple as... Changing a location, doing three rinses a day, or adding a lid, all for the same problem, whichever one works for you. Because some of us aren't home during the day, and we can't add a third rinse. Uh, but there's no reason, in my opinion, for the small flock owner or the small landholder with a few goats or something that wants to do fodder to have to go out and spend hundreds or thousands of dollars and automatic timers and all kinds of other things to grow fodder we can grow it in five-gallon buckets. I'll put a link to the Dead Simple Fodder System again in today's show notes. A lot of people are using it, and uh, a lot of people seem to be really, really happy with it. Hey, Jack. This is uh, Jack of All Trades in Colorado. I have a quick question for urban gardening for you. I'm pulling up my summer crops and want to know if it's better to pull them up or chop them and drop them in place and let the roots just rot in the ground. Thanks for all you do. Bye. Uh, I'm going to say chop and drop with a caveat, okay? So let, let's start out with what I don't want to do. I don't want to pull the roots out of the ground. Uh, unless it's a carrot or a beet or something I'm going to eat, I'm going to leave all roots in the ground. It's food for soil life and soil organisms. And even if it might attract some pest nematodes or something, you got to have the pest so that the predator will come to eat the pest. That doesn't mean you want to be overrun with pests, but if you wipe out all your pests... There will be no predators, and the pest will recover faster than the predator. All right, so if you went out on the Serengeti and you want to have lions on the Serengeti, you've got to have wildebeest, and you've got to have zebras, and you've got to have gazelles. And if you take away all the plains game, there won't be any lions. Or if the plains game moves, the lions will follow them. They're going to sit around where there's no food. So I don't get too worried about things like pest insects and, and things like that. Though there are some situations where deep litter mulch, some some pests can overwinter in, and that may not be good. Uh, if, if you have certain pests that are hard to control, like squash vine borers and things like that. Now, particularly with squash, one of the things I'm concerned with is, is stuff like powdery mildew. So if I have a particular plant 
that harbors certain things that I don't want to hold over, like blight on tomatoes or powdery mildew and things like that, when I cut those off at the roots, I'm going to take them away. I'm going to take them away somewhere else and uh, compost them and put them through a process like that. If I've had bad problems with tomato blight, I'm probably going to, at minimum, rest that bed from production of tomatoes for the next year or rest that area from production of tomatoes. You would think, I would say, well, pull the roots out because tomato blight actually enters through the roots, but you're probably going to do more harm to the soil by pulling out a giant tomato root than just leaving it alone and let nature taking its course and basically starve out the blight by not having anything for it to feed on. And if you're in an area where winters get really cold, it'll it'll kill the fungus in the soil anyway. Uh, tomato blight, potato blight don't do well with really harsh cold winters. So mostly I'm going to say chop and drop, but if you had any significant disease on the vegetation, chop and compost. But overall, try to do as little disturbance to the soil as possible. Again, I'm moving more and more toward, even where I'm vegetable gardening, if you want to call that, daikon and white clover as a ground cover and cut a hole in it and plant into it. Um, or, you know, cut a little furrow and put your seeds in there and let the clover come back around it as the, as the vegetables come up. Uh, it's just, if you look in nature, wherever there's vitality, the ground is covered. And except in the middle of a forest... It's not really usually covered with litter and dead matter. It's covered with something alive. So I'm trying to emulate that more and more, and I suggest everybody else try to try that out for themselves as well. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Just had one question for uh, to get your opinion on life insurance. Uh, something I haven't heard you really talk about and something that me and my family have started to think about. Uh, term, uh, full life insurance, what's the difference, and is it even worth the money? Um, was it a big scam? Uh, really, really love to hear your opinion. Thanks, Jack. Bye. Well, it is something that I've talked about quite extensively from time to time, but, you know, we are heading rapidly for 1,500 episodes. So it's very reasonable that someone that maybe even listens quite a bit might have never heard my take on this. The term you're actually looking for there is not full life, it's whole life. So you have two main types. There's a, there are a dozen permutations of life insurance, but the two primary ones are whole and term. Uh, term works this way. You buy the insurance for a given term. This limits the risk of the insurance company, so it's cheaper, a lot cheaper. And you can even get things like term to 90, uh, which is what we carry specifically to make sure there's enough money that if either of us die while well, there's a mortgage on a home, that if nothing else, the mortgage on the home can be covered, uh, along with additional living expenses. And we carry quite a bit of that, far beyond what we would need to pay off a house mortgage, um, which I think is a minimum. I think that minimum, you should insure your life, especially when one uh, uh, one side of the family is highly dependent on the other, which is most homes in America today, you're both dependent because they're two-income households, that you should be able to pay off all debt, specifically things like mortgage debt, so that you can eliminate that expense uh, while you figure out what you want to do and have at least one year's salary total. That doesn't mean replace one side's salary, 
but what is the combined earnings for one year, at least pay off all debt in one year? I actually don't think that's enough, but I think that is the minimum. And I think that most people can do that so cheaply, and those who have it have no idea how inexpensive it is to do. And if you can't afford to spend too much, you can always go with a short term until you figure out what else to do. Now, the problem with that is there's a lot. See, this could be a whole show, and I'm trying to keep things short and moving on today. The, the problem is where you become sick, ill, injured in some way that it becomes expensive or impossible for you to get insurance in the future. So the longer the term, the greater you reduce your risk of that occurring, the longer you know you can carry the insurance at the lowest possible cost. The time to buy your life insurance is when you're young, and the best next best time is tomorrow. Okay, Just, just saying that. So I am always going to push you towards term, with one exception that I'll get to at the end. It's not going to apply to 99.5% of the audience. Just not going to. I, I like long-term policies or guaranteed renewable at-rate policies. So sometimes you can get a 20-year term guaranteed renewability at the 20 years for another 20 years with no rate increase, no matter what. Okay, That is as good as a 40-year term policy to me. I have more options with it, honestly. Sometimes you have guaranteed renewable, but your rate will increase. But some policies come with guaranteed renewability. They are going to have a rate increase, but they're going to tell you what that rate is today, and your health will not affect it. Some are guaranteed renewable, meaning they will issue you a new policy at the end of the term, but require you know, you'd have a physical and a new questionnaire and reassess, and you might have, oh, yeah, we'll renew it. It's going to be expensive as shit. All of these things have to be taken into consideration. This is like why we like term to 90. For people especially under 40, which we both were when we bought it, it's the cheapest option that takes you well into being old. In fact, it's the cheapest option that, you know, there's a pretty good probability that somebody's going to collect it. Not a lot of people live much past 90. So, And at 90, you should have your life in order enough that if you have a little bit put aside for a burial, you don't need life insurance anymore. Life insurance pay ongoing expenses, cover debt costs, and readjustment after the death of a spouse. That's what the purpose is. It's to insure your life and so that when you see life insurance isn't for you. This is why some people think it's a ripoff. It's one thing you buy that's never for you. You don't benefit from it. Don't tell me about how you can invest with and borrow against and all this other crap. There's better ways to do every other thing except one thing life insurance will do for people who are very wealthy. Okay? Other than that, that's what it's for. So when you buy life insurance, you're buying it for your kids and your wife. When your wife buys life insurance, she's buying it for you and your kids. So we have to think about others when we look at evaluating life insurance, but we also need to not do stupid things. So I believe you buy the most affordable, cheapest insurance against your life you can get. There are no bad life insurance companies. It's one of the most heavily regulated industries out there. But if you look for 4A-rated companies, you know you're in good shape. It's extremely competitive. Shop around, use a broker, and find the best deal that you can get. Pay your policy a year at a time. Make sure you have uh, what do you call automatic payments set up for it. You don't want to not have a policy paid for and then somebody dies. What a disaster that is. And they will use any excuse not to pay you. So that's the basics there, and that's that's the minimum. 
pay off all debt, one year of both salaries. Why both salaries? Because uh, you don't know what's going to happen after your spouse dies. You don't know if you might end up needing two months to just adjust, to take a leave of absence from work, and to make sure your kids are going to be okay, or make sure you're going to be okay, or whatever it is you need to do. You just don't know. And having the ability to do that's important. And you might end up in a situation where, because of everything that goes on in all the turmoil, maybe you lose your income. Now, what is the rule? The rule for proper financial planning is each side should insure themselves for enough to replace 10 years of income. So if you make $100,000 a year, you should carry a million dollars of term life insurance. That's, that's the, the financial planning rule, and it's a pretty good rule. It's one I support, but I just know that not everybody's in a place. But the reality is since you buy what you need, the person that, that says they can't afford it probably can. Okay, um, and there are other, there's so many permeations of this. So another is what's called declining term. So you can take a declining term policy, take that out specifically to cover your mortgage. And that's very cheap, and it works like this. You buy 30-year declining term, and every year you're insured for a little bit less. And in the last year, you're insured for almost nothing. In that 30 years, if you die, you get a dollar the day before the policy cancels. Not really, but that's kind of how it works. But it, when the policy terminates, there's only a few thousand dollars of coverage left on it. Well, why would somebody do that? To cover a depreciating debt. So we're in a house. We know we're staying here for 30 years. This is our forever home. We can take out a separate policy specifically to cover the cost of the home at any point that either spouse happens to pass away and have that safety net. And it's very cheap because, well, most of the time, unless you're 60, the insurance company figures neither one of you is going to die. If you're buying this at 30, it's dirt cheap. And not only that, they also figure, well, if one of them dies in 25 years, we're not on the hook for very much money. So it's a very inexpensive way to specifically target something. And these are available in many permeations. But basic term life for either 30 years or term to 90, something in that vein, to cover at least your debt, add 50% to it because your debt can grow when you buy a new house and it costs more and now the insurance is more expensive, so at least 50% more than your debt and at least one year of both spouses. And that should be on both spouses. That simple. Now, when is whole life a good idea? Almost never. You're paying more for the same coverage, except it never gets canceled, which means you get to pay for it forever. Some policies do have a place where you're paid up in full, cash-out options, etc. In almost every instance, if you had taken the savings, so if you, you took what it cost to buy term, and then what it cost to buy whole, it took the difference, and put into something boring with a 5% return, you'd come out far ahead with none of the restrictions of life insurance. So how do you win with life insurance? It has to do with inheritance, passing money on to your heirs, and having that money not taxed. If you're going to leave behind more than about $3 million uh, to your heirs, it makes a lot of sense to put a significant amount of whole life insurance in place as a financial planning tool specifically to hand down inheritance and to avoid the taxes on that inheritance, which become more and more steep every year, it seems, with what you call the death tax. 
And the break-even point's about $3 million left behind. So high net worth individuals are going to leave $10, $15, $20 million of uh, inheritance behind. Multiple heirs will often uh, take out very large whole life insurance policies with some other uh, investment options attached to them that will, in effect, make the inheritance uh, a, a, a payout of a life insurance policy and not subject to many of the taxes and not count toward how much can be bequeathed. So it's a great planning tool for the wealthy. And if that's not you, if you're not leaving behind more than about $3 million bucks, then, well, this is probably a case to stick with term. Uh, there's your financial planning session by Jack. And with that, uh, I'm going to now play for you a uh, question that Tim Glantz from Old Grouts Military Surplus answered, but it's the wrong answer. Kevin from Perma Ethos called in a call, which didn't come out very well, and we ended up losing because it's so long ago, about military-style jerry cans and replacing the, the, the lids of them. Tim thought he was talking about an old-style can, not the newer-style can, so... Uh, he thought we couldn't even get them anymore, but now he's found a way around. I'm going to play the call anyway, because there may be some of you out there that have these types of cans or that can find them in a store somewhere that they're being sold cheap because nobody thinks you can get lids for them anymore. And these are the ones where you actually screw in the lid. So let's hear from Tim on that little tweak with uh, military surplus gear. And we'll see if he can get us an answer to the actual question next week. Hey, Jack, it's Tim from Old Groucher Surplus with an uh, answer for Kevin. Delayed, but finally an answer. Uh, my initial response to uh, Jack when he asked this question is, no, there's none available, and I've looked. But before I called in, I decided I was going to look harder and see if we couldn't find an answer here, and we did find one. Uh, there are no original caps available. The last company that was actually capable of making the original caps was a Blitz company, and they would sell you a replacement cap. They could no longer make the actual cans and sell caps for new use on new cans because of the new uh, EPA regulations on jerry cans. But they could make replacement ones for, you know, the pre-ban, as we call them, cans. But they got put out of business by lawsuits. Uh, people were taking gasoline cans, dumping gas on open flames, getting burned, as you would expect, and then suing the gas can maker for not warning them not to do stupid things. So when they left, uh, that dried up the source of replacement parts. But we started looking, started asking around and experimenting, and here's your answer. The thread and size on those caps is the same as the bug cap for a 55-gallon steel drum. So easy to find, $1 or $2 bung caps off of 55-gallon drums will thread into your jerry can and will seal it. However, you have to take care of one thing. There's a small vent hole right above the opening on most jerry cans. And because the flange on the top of the uh, bung cap is not designed to seal that, it's not as wide, so it'll leave that open. Uh, the two possibilities you have are you can either find a big 2-inch washer to use along with the bung cap to push down in your gasket to seal it, or uh, I had good luck taking a fuel-proof epoxy and sealing it because that hole is very tiny, so it's really easy to seal. Uh, it makes it pour a little slower if you're using a, the nozzle, but that is the only downside to, to blocking that off, and that's a lot better than losing a can because of a bad cap. So uh, there's an answer that'll help you get a cap that you can actually use on your cans. Uh, assuming the insides are still good, it's well worth the uh, one or two dollar investment to uh, keep your cans going for sure, since you you can't actually buy those cans on the market anymore. 
I uh, hope this helps. hope this answers your question. It helps a few folks out there uh, be able to find some deals out there at the, the flea market yard sales for cans with bad caps. And uh, if anybody still needs brand-new NATO cans, uh, be sure to look us up because we're still able to get those at uh, oldgrouch.com. And uh, thanks for all you do, Jack. That's a very cool little hack for uh, military surplus gear, and I'm sure there's people out there that either have those style cans and need caps for them, or uh, maybe we'll find opportunities now to buy them because people think they're just to put on a shelf and look at because you can't get a cap. So thanks for that, Tim. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Al um, from Michigan. I have a question about the container system. I'm looking to automate my water delivery for the containers. I've got a number of cuttings that I've taken from the neighborhood and from the area and growing them in the using that container system. And I was just wondering, is there something out there that I could use to automate the water supply? I'm getting tired of squirting water every other day and, and I just want to be able to leave for the weekend or, or a period of time without having to worry about watering them. Thanks a lot for what you do, Jack, and have a good day. There are a lot of ways you could do it from really low-tech to pretty high-tech, and it all depends on what you want to do. I mean, the easiest thing to do, assuming you have power, and many of these things can be run with a couple batteries as well, like you know 9 volts or double A's or something, is to get a simple sprinkling, uh, electronic sprinkler timer and set that up wherever you're keeping your containers and set out some sprinklers of whatever type you want that will actually create the pattern that you're looking for Um over your containers uh, and set them there and set the timer. That's it. That's the whole thing. It'll go off, they'll go and they'll do their thing. Now, you can get sophisticated where you're using like a solenoid valve for each zone and a timer that controls those solenoids. Uh, that's how intermittent misting systems that are going to be part of Nick Ferguson's uh, plant propagation class work. And what's going to be great for people when they learn how to do that in that class is that those same systems can run intermittent mist, they can run sprinklers, they can run timers in a greenhouse. So you'll be able to take that skill and transfer it to any of these other things like watering your containers. But, I mean, if you went to Amazon, found an electronic sprinkler timer, and then got yourself a couple sprinklers or maybe one sprinkler if you're doing one tray. I mean, it depends on how many you're doing. Just figure out where you want the water to fall. Set that there and set it and forget it. It'll it'll do it for you. And if, well, you don't really want too much pressure, just whatever water line you run to there, back down the pressure till it gives you the pattern you're looking for. Let the timer take care of it for you. I can tell you when I put my new greenhouse in, there's going to be zoned misted irrigation in there, and it's going to be set in a timer, and I'm not going to be in there. Wa I should say Dorothy's not going to have to be in there watering it every day because she's taking on water in all the plants in the nursery. We're going to set that up for everything. But any type of sprinkler that will give you the pattern you're looking for, and then just look at how long it needs to run and let it go from there. Unless you're doing them on the floor of a shop under lights or something where you don't want everything wet, that's it. It's about as easy as it could be. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Keith from Western Colorado. Hey, uh, so we got something kind of cool to tell you. We've got our quail we're getting ready to put into a Moon Valley Prepper style of uh, operation. Anyways, right now they're just in a brooder with sawdust and some branches and stuff. And we're giving a 28% game bird starter, like you recommended. Uh, this one uses more 
sunflower seeds than uh, other stuff. We're finding whole sunflower seeds occasionally. Anyways, point being, we're getting two and a half, sometimes three eggs per quail per day. I don't know how, but that's over the past three days. They just started laying three days ago, so... Don't know what's going on there. I just thought you guys would find it interesting. Talk to you soon. Love to see you. Bye. I've not yet raised quail on my own, but I, I have to believe that is not typical uh, laying numbers. How, how's a quail lay half an egg? Two and a half eggs? I know what you're saying. When you average out all the eggs versus all the birds. Um, I've had chickens not go to that extreme, but I've had you know eight hens and walked out and got 11 eggs. So, uh, you know, laying two eggs in one day is not unprecedented for any bird. It didn't continue. It was when they first started laying, I would get these really, really high productive days. Uh, and, and, and sooner or later it ebbed off and averages now, you know, out of if I had eight birds, I'll get maybe six to seven eggs a day during the heavy laying time of the year. The reality with any bird and any female for that matter, you're born as a female with all the eggs that you will ever produce. Humans, birds, doesn't matter. Every time one is used through ovulation, it's gone. Doesn't come back, doesn't make any new ones. Birds typically have a pretty short cycle of how long they'll lay for in their lives. And the more they are productive, the shorter that cycle. So I, I'm not going to talk about quail here because I don't really know hard numbers, but a chicken Here's some hard numbers. A chicken will usually begin to lay in earnest at six months of age. And how productive they are at six months depends on a lot of things, the breed, feed, everything else. But uh, one of the biggest impactful things is the time of year. There's times of year where birds lay less, time of year where birds lay more, and it's about light duration. So going into the first major light cycle, that bird will, you know, long daylight cycle, will start to lay a lot of eggs. And it will lay eggs in earnest, all the way up until it is 18 months old for one year. So a half a year to become egg-laying, and then a year of really, really productive egg-laying. At that point, that bird will go through a molt. And I know all birds run cycles like this. I just don't know if they're all the same numbers, uh, the way they work out as far as time. And after that, during that molt, that bird will lay very few eggs because it's going to shed all its feathers and have to grow new ones, and that takes a lot of energy. So the energy now is going to go into growing new feathers instead of making eggs. And some birds lay quite a bit during the molting cycle. Some lay almost nothing. Usually it's they lay a lot less than normal. Once the new feathers are grown, which in this, by the way, the molting is a very, very stressful time for your hens. It really is. It's hard on them. Uh, but when they, they're done with that molt, they'll resume laying. They generally go down a notch in productivity. And with chickens anyway, after the second molt, you have an expensive pet. You do not have an egg machine anymore. And if you're, if you're raising chickens specifically for the purpose of um, egg production for profit, you're usually better off after the first molt calling them. By the way, if you wait till they're molting to call them, it's a lot easier to pluck them if you're plucking them. Just saying there. Anyway... Um, I would like to hear from people that have experience with quail. Is this type of number, you know, this high productivity typical early on, and do they wane? And I honestly, I never thought of asking this when we had Moving Valley Prepper on. It was the only show we ever did really dedicated to quail. 
what is the cycle of quail? How long do I keep a female quail, a uh, little hen, I guess you call them, a hen and a roo, I think, in quails, uh, before it's better to just say it is time for her to graduate to the mesquite grill and be replaced? What is that cycle? I know with chickens, for high productivity, it's 18-month cycle, six months to get there, one year of productivity going into a molt cycle. For most of us homesteaders, you can let them go to that second molt, no problem. Even the third molt, you know, that time between the second and third molt, most of those birds lay two, three eggs a week, and that might be worth keeping an old bird around just because you like her. Um, but at some point, it's time for her to graduate to charcoal briquettes and I want it, or the stock pot. And what is that number for a quail? And what is a typical egg-to-bird ratio for a well-developed flock of quail? Be interesting to hear. With that, it's time. Now that we're talking about charcoal briquettes and grilling quail, and I'm thinking of wrapping quail's breasts in bacon with jalapeno slices inserted in it and marinated with Worcestershire and soy sauce and beer. Um, let's talk about food. So a listener wrote in a question for Chef Keith Snow. Uh, a lot of times you guys write in questions for the expert counsel, and I delete them. You're supposed to call them in. That's the rule. You call 866-65-THINK. You leave your question. And when you do, you say, I have a question for a council member. Say their name. And this is the question, and here's the details. And then I forward it to them. But I liked this question, and this person had a reason for not calling it in. So I made an exception. I sent Keith the question by mail. He's going to read the question for you and then give you the answer. And with that, I warn you now... If you haven't eaten today, you're going to be hungry when he's done. Let's hear from Chef Keith Snow. Hey, it's Chef Keith Snow from the Expert Council, and I wanted to answer the question that came in from Bonnie Blue 2A on the TSP forum, and it is about getting a lot of pork. Let me read you the question first. Chef Keith, I've made arrangements with a local homesteader to purchase half of a hog that will be butchered the end of October or the 1st of November. The hog will have been raised entirely on garden over produce, excess dairy goat milk, excess chicken eggs, and limited pasture. This is my first fresh hog purchase, and I really do not know where to begin when ordering the cuts and cooking the fresh pork. Most of the time I'll be cooking for one. Are there any special considerations I should take into account when ordering cuts or in the preparation, cooking, home curing of beyond organic, non-grain-fed pork? Thanks for considering my questions, and I look forward to the answer on TSP. Well, Bonnie Blue 2A, here we go. First of all, uh, congratulations on um, stepping up and taking a share of uh, real pork. Now, um, I've definitely been a pretty big critic of factory farm meat and, you know, whether it be pork, beef, chicken. Now, I'll say first up, do I ever eat it? Sure. On occasion, I do eat it. And um, that's something that I wanted to just come right out and say and not be hypocritical. However, uh, when whenever I have the chance to buy Something natural like you're describing here, I will jump at the chance. Um, and there are plenty of places for folks to look to find um, pork like this and even beef and chicken There's and turkeys. There's a lot of small farmers that uh, you can purchase a share, a whole, a half, whatever of this type of meat. Now, um, we used to buy when we were in North Carolina from a place called Hickory Nut Gap Farm, 
and they had all different cuts there. You could go and you can get a whole, a half, or you could just buy individual cuts, and they're all cryovacked and frozen. Now, I'm suspecting that the person you're going to buy this from is going to send it to a local processor. Most of these local processors, at least the ones that I know of, are required to um, butcher the hog and then to uh, portion it, cryovac it, and sell it frozen. Uh, very few places that I've found, unless it's a neighbor or something like that, can you get the pork fresh. Now, there's nothing wrong with getting it frozen. In fact, it's a pretty good way to go. Um, so the first thing I want to say is I've posted a uh, a chart on my website. If you go to harvesteating.com, um, and just it should pop up right on the home page somewhere somewhere there there'll be something called like pork cut chart or or uh, something similar there'll be a picture of a pig go and take a look at that or if you want to email me keith at harvesteating.com be happy to send the chart via email to anybody that wants it and this is going to give you an idea of where the cuts come from now um, when you think about let's deal with the fact that it's you'll be cooking for one in a minute but when you order from somebody like this and they take it in, they're generally going to give you all the basic cuts, like uh, the pork butt, which is really the shoulder. That's something that is uh, in the Carolinas and all over. It's it's smoked and turned into pulled pork. There's chops, you know, whether they be bone-in chops or boneless chops, loin chops. There's ribs, which, of course, are wonderful smoked. There's tenderloin and then there's also loin. Don't confuse the two. Um, they're totally different, but um, they can be used to make Canadian bacon. They can be smoked. Usually it's the, the loin that's smoked and turned into um, Canadian bacon, which is delicious stuff. Uh, you can get a you can get pork belly. Now, I think you said you're getting half of a hog. You should be able to get some pork belly. And there's a zillion recipes on the Internet to cure and smoke your own bacon, which is a lot of fun, and it's actually very, very easy. Don't be intimidated by it. Um, also, you're going to want to get ground pork to make sausage and meatballs. and I mean, there's a zillion things. You can make bolognese sauce. There's a video and recipe for that on my website, which uses a combination of beef and pork. So you definitely want to get some ground pork because you can make your own breakfast sausage you can stuff chicken legs with it and chicken breasts there's a zillion things you can do with ground sausage and it's a lot easier to get it from a small place like that than doing it yourself um, also the rear leg is often called uh, the, the fresh ham and that of course is something that people will have you know when will they have a ham i guess that's uh new year's day a lot of people have hams um, and I love a fresh ham like that. It's uh, it, it's really delicious. And you can smoke one, too, to get some smoke flavor and then finish it in the oven. Um, but a, a fresh ham is a delicious thing. That's the rear leg. And it's a really large cut. I don't know if, if they're going to give you one or not, but that's not going to be something uh, super handy for somebody um, to eat, you know, for one person. Now, when you get like a spiral sliced ham, that's generally the cut that they're using um, for that. So I would rely on the local processor or the farmer and see what they advise um, and, or just ask them when they get a process what generally comes back. But any combination of the things I just mentioned are going to be great. 
And you can certainly, um, if they if they come back frozen and cryovac, you can just throw them right in your freezer, and that is a super great place to keep them, and they will last a good long time. Now, as far as cooking it and dealing with it, this type of pork is generally going to taste and look completely different than the stuff than the other white meat. The reason the other white meat is so white and bland and just not good is because they feed it lousy feed. They don't get any exercise. They don't get any sunshine. They're not eating um, a varied diet. Now, pigs in the wild, and I've had the opportunity to film television shows uh, at places that do pastured pork like this, several of them, in fact. Um, real hogs, number one, they're, they're generally a, they're not going to be those little white um, pink, uh, little pink pigs, you know, the smooth-skinned ones. These are generally going to be something like Berkshires or Durocs, um, big black hogs. These are different. They're hairy. They've got the big ears. It's a different breed. So that in itself is going to mean that the meat is going to be somewhat different than a market pig. Also, they generally get to be a little heavier than most market pigs. Um, but they're eating a varied diet. And if you watch a pig out in the forest, that's where they like to be. They don't, you know, people think that you can put pigs on grass and just going to sit there and eat grass. They'll eat some grass, but they like to be in the forest and rooting with their nose. They actually do a lot of damage, most pigs, and they will root up lots of different things that um, you wouldn't think would be edible. They, they find lots of stuff, grubs, worms, nuts, roots, seeds, bark. I mean, they will eat lots and lots of stuff. And it sounds like this particular uh, hog is getting some other good things like eggs and the, and the dairy goat milk and being able to chew up maybe some lettuce or greens out of the garden, whatever it might be. Um, but this type of pork is going to look a lot darker. And you're going to see that it's it's almost the other red meat. And that's because, number one, it's getting more exercise, more blood flow, tends to color the meat, plus what they're eating really has an effect on the color and taste of the meat. Now, I find um, it's getting worse for me as far as taste with any um, pork from the store, and I avoid it as much as possible and just don't eat it because I don't find it tastes very good. It tastes, if I could say, it tastes dirty to me. Um, but a good, you know, pastured-type natural hog will have a really good kind of a pork flavor, which is wonderful and I can distinctly remember getting um, meat from that farm in Asheville, North Carolina and the pork chops were amazing and the um, the ribs, I used to get ribs from them like for 50 cents a pound more than those factory farm clunkers in the store and those were amazing and also, um, you know, those are like baby back ribs. You can also get country style ribs and don't be afraid to, to ask for those. Um, now those have a lot of meat on them. Those are awesome just with some sauerkraut and potatoes and some bay leaves and things like that um but the taste is so much better it's a much cleaner taste and and um you know again i congratulate you on on spending your money on this and i wouldn't worry so much about cooking it a lot differently they're gonna they're gonna cook up pretty similar they're probably gonna wind up being a little more moist than a market pig because those are so darn lean that they tend to dry up like a pork um, pork loin that you buy, and a pork loin is much bigger than the tenderloin. But if you buy a pork loin in the store, and it's been several years since I've done that, and mainly when you cook them up, even to the very basic uh, required temperature, they're so dry 
they just they just get dry. They taste like nothing. I mean, you got to like slather it in gravy, and that's just not the way it's supposed to be. I mean, it's supposed to have some moisture to it and a and a nice flavor. So I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised. But as far as the cooking, I wouldn't alter too much. If you ever have any direct questions when you get any of this, you can always email me Keith at HarvestEating.com. Happy to help out. Um, and you know that's a that's about all I can offer. As far as uh, advice there, that's a terrific thing to do. And uh, I want to mention to everybody out there that um, has been buying spices and stuff in the store, thank you. And we have a uh, special coupon code running until the end of this month. The code is October. And if you use that code, we will ship your order for free. I think it's got to be $50 or more, which is uh, really easy to do. Um, in the store, but we'll ship it for free using coupon code October. I want to thank all of you TSP members for your support of Harvest Eating and also for your support of Jack and Bonnie. Um, let me know how those pork chops come out. Take care. All right. Well, good stuff there from Chef Keith, and I wish you well with uh, your half a hog. And let's go ahead and take another call. Hello, Jack. This is Keith from Western Colorado. We recently moved on to a farm with four acres in irrigation. We have irrigation from May through to the end of October, three and a half shares. I would like to food forest it, uh, perhaps backyard, mini orchard type of a food forest. How do I incorporate the swales with irrigation water? Just a little bit more background. The shale is here at uh, six feet. And that's the aquifer. The uh, water down there is a little bit too alkaline, so they tell me, but I believe that through proper food forcing techniques we can mitigate some of the alkalinity. Anyways, how do I irrigate with our water while doing swales? It's all on a 3% to 4% slope. Um, well, you may not install a single swale in this system. I don't really understand exactly what you mean by you have irrigation. Do you have irrigation because somewhere water comes out and you can attach it to something to irrigate? Or do you have irrigation on that three to four acres that's already been installed that's something like pop-up sprinklers uh, where I looked at one of the homes that we thought about buying and I really kind of wanted to buy it, uh, but I just couldn't make everything work out with it where it was 10 acres and the whole thing was irrigated and zoned agricultural. And you could flip a switch and you could... You waited, and it went in zones, and it watered the whole 10 acres. How many swales would I have put in that place? Probably none. Um, it was also very flat property. Uh, you're talking about a 2 to 3 4% grade. You don't have much over land flow. Um, so I might not do any swelling at all. It depends. Here's what it depends on. If I get a lot of pipes running in the ground, and I'm going to start cutting pipes and rerouting pipes and stuff, I'll know it's worth it since I got irrigation. It also depends when you tell me the water is a bit too alkaline. Do they mean it's too alkaline if you drill down and get to that water down there in the shell and use it? Or do they mean the water that you're getting off your irrigation shares? I, I don't really know because alkalinity can be an issue when you're in a, you know, Colorado, you're in kind of alkaline flats country, so you're just going to have to pick plants that survive in your soil type, your soil pH, and yes, it will become more fungal dominated, which we'll leave for later, and more acidic over time, but, you know, more acidic in some places is going from, uh, you know, a 7.8 to a 7.6, which is still alkaline, or some places going from an 8.4 to an 8.0, highly alkaline, even though it's more toward the acidic, so... 
I don't know there. So if you got good quality irrigation water coming from, I don't know, a dam or a river or canal system, whatever, uh, and I would definitely use it over pulling alkaline water out of the ground directly underneath you if that's what you're asking. So there's a lot of it depends in here. I do want to kind of use this as an opportunity to talk about food forestry and swales. One does not require the other. Okay, You can have food forest with no swales. You have swales and do something totally different than a food forest, though swales are really, in essence, tree-growing systems. So silbel pasture, food forestry, whatever. But it's not like you can't have a food forest unless you have swales. They just make so dadgone much sense and are so easy to install and do so much good in so many situations that it's very hard to make a case not to do it. But if we have irrigation everywhere on four acres, then I'm going to start designing the system without being controlled by the contour of the swale. Or I may go in and put very minor earthworks in and avoid my uh, you know, very shallow, gentle swale-type situations on contour to maximize the effect of that irrigation. I really hope I know where all the lines are run Because, boy, what an opportunity to put in strip forests. And I can either go on contour or I can do anything I want. 3% great ain't that big a deal. Maybe put in a little pond or something if you're allowed to do that where you're at uh, to catch excess uh, water from the irrigation and really start to rehydrate things. Now, if the irrigation lines are run such that it makes sense to put swales in, like it's going to work, You, and maybe you have to, I mean, because PVC pipe, if that's what it's run with, is not that complicated to dig up, cut, reroute. Not that expensive to do. If it makes sense, and you can, then the big opportunity is to go in, shoot your contour lines with an A-frame level or a, a laser level. And this size property, I'd invest in a laser level. It's well worth 700 bucks. Figure out your design based on swales. Put your swales in. And instead of just watering the crap out of everything, use those lines and run basically drip or low-intensity mist irrigation all along the swale line. So you can take then, possibly, again, it's you got stuff in place. I don't know what's there. But one of the ways this could be done is you could, if you can just tie in to your existing water supply, do what I did, Um, but you're probably going to have to go deeper because you're in a much colder climate. But go out and mark your your your, uh, your swale lines. Go ahead and right in front of there, run a trencher and put in a new irrigation line that's going to follow the contour and then fill that trench in and cut the swale at the same time. And so then the, the, the irrigation line ends up beneath the swale berm, have it all stubbed up everywhere you want, um, To, uh, to have access to that line and run irrigation straight along your swales. I mean, there's a lot of ways you can do it. My biggest concern here is let's not do swales just to do swales. Okay, let's do swales because they make sense for the design. And at a 3% to 4% grade, you may not need to, especially with full-on irrigation. And let's not tear up properly run, controlled, because most of the time on a, a job that size, Everything's electro there's electric wires run down there, there's timers, there's solenoids, and that system's set up to set a timer and run. And if that's the case, you don't need swales. 
Now, I still want some earthworks in here, right? Because the, the texture is, is really valuable. So I might go and put some hoogles on contour or something like that or some small berms or something. But in essence, what you really could do if you have the irrigation is just start planting trees. Start planting trees. And if you want to maximize the irrigation, then the cheapest way I could advise you is get irrapans. Uh, you can get them for less than $4 a piece in sufficient quantity. And wherever you put a tree, plant an ear, you know, do it, do it in an irrapan. And whenever that irrigation goes, that's going to really protect and infiltrate water for that tree. Don't, I mean, the big takeaway in this, this question is don't be married to the concept of I have to have swales to have a food forest. Swales, Big, small, little, medium-sized, whatever, don't always make sense. You have to take the land and the goals of the land and what's already there and maximize it. Now, I would much rather put in a small amount of irrigation on four acres with well-earthwork systems and spend the money to put, an, put a main, huge, large, expensive irrigation system in. But if it's already there, it's already there. So you have to make your decisions based on that. This one's complex. So if you want to call back in, give me if I didn't hit it right, and give me more details, and then email me that you've done so to, and remind me about this, I'll try to get it on the air in the future and give you more on it. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Matt in Michigan. Just want to say thanks again for all you do. Got a quick question for you about Silvo Pasture. Um, I'm looking at the possibility of uh, having orchard-based trees for that silvo pasture. And uh, as I've been doing some research into orcharding, one of the things that I found is that to avoid diseases in a lot of your apple trees and stuff, that you want to push your soil toward a more fungal state as opposed to bacterial state. But then I listen to guys like Greg Judy, uh, talking about how for the health of your grasses, you want to push your, your soil more toward a bacterial state. And so it seems like I've got kind of two objectives that, you know, if you want to run cows or something down orchard lanes, that I've kind of got conflicting objectives here with regard to what the soil wants. Um, and I'm sure that I'm missing something obvious. I wondered if you could just maybe speak to uh, some of those conflicts between what grasses want versus what trees want and making cows happy in the mix of all that. So thanks. <laughs> have a good one. Bye. Well, there's a lot going on there. I mean, the first thing we have to do is talk about what is fungal versus bacterial soil. When you get to a point of one-to-one -one where you have about one fungal to one bacterial, right, you are actually in a fungal system. Um, you're not going to see a, a soil that's a uh, hundred uh, fungus to one bacteria. When you're about a bacterially dominated soil, you're actually not in really good shape, even for pasture. So even in pasture, you want to start moving toward some fungal activity. And so if you're pure bacterial, you're going to be anaerobic and you're going to have very poor quality vegetation and only uh, very hardy, pioneering, and not very palatable species of grasses and other things are going to grow there well for you. So when you hear somebody like Greg Judy talk about bacterial-based soil, he's just saying, well, it's not as fungal as it is in the forest. Okay, And you want good bacteria. You want aerobic bacteria in that soil. You want the soil non-compact. You want good grassroot systems into that soil. So Greg's right. And then when you talk about getting fungal for growing better trees, they're right too. So how, how do you balance this? Well, 
and you talk, start talking about a civil pasture system, you're not going to be orchard spacing. You can't do it. And the reason you can't do it is if the trees were as close as they are in an orchard, uh, they'd be so close together, cows would be eating the trees. You have to have enough space to at least keep the cows off the trees. Now, as I talked about over time recently, as your trees get larger and you start getting canopies up at 8, 10 feet, you can actually tack your um, your insulators right on the trunk of your trees, run wire right on them, and, and the, the, the cattle can actually browse underneath and keep them pruned off, and all that's good and well. But if you're at orchard space, and we got like six-foot lanes, I mean, if you just think about the size of a cow, and it's walking through something that's six foot between the trees. So we're going to have to space out. And as soon as we space out, this problem starts to become its own solution. Let's ask ourselves. Now, there's all kinds of fungus that can live in a pasture out in the middle of the open. But when it comes to making fungus happy, we want to move toward the acidic. So we want humic acid. What is humic acid? Humic acid is the result of large amounts of organic matter, humus, breaking down in a natural compost, creating humic acid. Where does this occur? Occurs under trees where large amounts of leaves fall. What other conditions do we want for fungus to be happy? Cool, moist. Where is it cool and moist? In the shade of trees. Where is it not quite as cool, not quite as moist, and there's not quite as much organic matter buildup out in the open? So if we're managing silvopasture correctly, it's going to be the case that you're going to have more fungal dominance along your strips of forest than you do out in your open pastures. You're going to have more bacterial dominance on the same piece of land out in the open pasture. So if we're managing properly, we don't have to do anything. Now, if you want to get really heavy into soil science and do the Dr. Elaine Ingram thing, you're getting your microscope out and you're looking for these different fungus and bacteria and good guys and bad guys, but if we're doing good rotational grazing, uh, we're going to have a good quality pasture. And if we're doing good forest management practices, we're going to have good quality forest. And we're going to get cool, damp, humic acid conditions underneath our canopy. And we're going to get good quality aerobic bacteria in our pasture. And there isn't really anything you got to do about it. When people talk about these fungal and bacterial dominant systems, again, it's not like one side's 100% more than the other. It's just which way it's leaning towards. And again, and this is what I learned from Elaine Ingram, when you hear fungal dominant, you're thinking, well, what, two to one, three to one, five to one? You're in a fungal system at one to one. If you have one fungal body for every bacterial body, you're in a fungal-based system. There's a lot of bacteria in forest-based systems. But you won't have good quality pasture if you're in a 100% bacterial pasture. But you're going to have a bacterial dominance. There's going to be more bacteria. When you're at 100 to 1, about the only thing they'll grow is like brome grasses. So a bacterial pasture might be 10 bacteria to 1 fungus. It's a good, healthy pasture, 10 to 20 to 1, somewhere in that range. And the more you move toward a 1 to 1, really the better it gets for everybody on both sides. You know, 5 to 1 pastures, pretty good stuff. You won't see a lot of it, and part of it is that there's just so much bacteria being contributed by those big piles that the 
you know, the, the, the cows and the pigs are pooping out. So there you go. Well, let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Anthony from the People's Republic of New Yorkistan. Got another question for you about firearms. Um, thinking about home defense rounds. Um, I was learning that lead projectiles coming out of a handgun or shotgun moves considerably slower than rifle rounds, and as such, they overpenetrate quite a bit. I have four kids. I was looking into rifle rounds that are frangibles. I know the muzzle velocity is way higher than a pistol round, but the frangibles break up on clothing, sheetrock, that kind of thing. What are your thoughts on that? I certainly wouldn't want to have the overpenetration problem with my loved ones in a crisis situation in my home. Just looking for your thoughts, man. Show's awesome. Thanks a lot. I've talked about this one recently, but it doesn't exist. The magic round that when you miss the bad guy won't penetrate the wall and hurt somebody on the other side of the wall. Uh, and it's going to be effective and reliable to make the bad guy dead or at least completely incapacitated. doesn't exist. Unless you live in an old house made out of brick, walls in modern homes are made with framing quality softwood 2x4s, 2x6s, one or the other. And those are the studs. And if you hit one of those, there's a pretty good chance you might stop whatever you're firing, even if it's more than enough to anchor a bad guy. But in between those studs, the majority of that space is made up of two pieces of uh, what do you call drywall and maybe some insulation. And unless it's foam sprayed insulation, it's pretty fluffy, loose stuff. A lot of your interior walls don't even have any of that. So pretty much you have a hollow space with two pieces of really good cardboard with some paint and spackle on them. If a round is going to hit that and break up and not penetrate, well, it's going to break up on the chest muscles of a person and leave a shallow wound and not do what it's intended to do. It may hurt like hell. It may make a horrific wound, But in a life-or-death situation with adrenaline raising, guys probably still shooting back at you, trying to hack you apart with a machete, etc. I bet if you hit him in the face, it might change his direction. But that's you can't rely on that. So we just have to accept that if you're going to have a gun in your home, and you might have to fire it in anger for the defense of your family, that if you don't hit what you're shooting at, and it goes into a wall, it's going to go through the wall most of the time. And if somebody's aligned where that shot is, they're probably going to get hit and possibly killed. That's how it works. That is the reality of self-defense with a firearm in a home. The end over. That is all. The best, the best thing then is to train well so that if you ever do fire, you hit what you're aiming at. This is not as complicated as some people would lead you to believe. If you look at home defense situations, in my home, there is one place where I could get a shot of about 25 feet, maybe 30 feet, I guess. In fact, I'll go look at it right now and tell you what it is. It's actually about 50 feet. It's a very narrow field of view, and I would have to have my back all the way up against the hallway uh, end, or the bad guy would have to be there, and I'd have to have my back all the way up against the bedroom wall. And it's not likely that that shot would ever happen. In most instances in my home, which is a fairly large home, 
uh, a distance that you'd be shooting at anybody in would be about 20 feet or less. It's not hard to hit a human body at 20 feet or less. If you can't see what you're shooting at, you probably shouldn't be shooting at it. You probably don't know whether you should shoot it or not. You don't know what it is. You don't know if it's a threat. So we're going to say that in most home defense situations, there's a person there, full-size human torso, um, that represents a threat that you can identify, therefore you can see it, and you should make yourself proficient enough at those distances to hit the damn thing. And can you guarantee that? No. You also can't guarantee that when you drive to work today, you won't be hit by a truck and die. We're trying to increase our odds of surviving a deadly situation, and the reality is you don't get any guarantees when somebody's broken into your house and wants to kill you. You don't even get a guarantee that when you shoot them, they're going to die and you're going to win. You don't even get that guarantee if you do draw your gun, point the gun at them, pull the trigger, hit them where the shot should be lethal, and hit them before they get you. You still are not guaranteed you're going to live. You're not guaranteed your family's going to live. Welcome to the world of violence. It is not like TV. It doesn't work that way. But most good home defense ammo, if you hit a human body with it, it isn't coming out and going through a wall. Or if it does, it's going to be significantly reduced in its ability to be lethal to somebody else. So it's more about you want a round that will be do a good job of getting in, taking out the bad guy, and not pass through him. Because it's going to pass through a wall. Effectively, again, I want you to think about this. Effectively, what you're doing. Have you ever worked with drywall? I can take my hand... And, and put a fist right through drywall. I don't even have to hit it that hard. It's a big, thick piece of cardboard. You're asking for a round that will explode when it impacts one or two big, thick pieces of cardboard and still penetrate a human being. I'm not saying technology can't get there. I'm not saying that someday we might not make a smart bullet that knows what it's hitting and performs differently with some kind of crazy electronics. We don't have that right now. That's the reality. As someone that's going to arm themselves in defense of their home and their family, you have to accept the fact that anytime you discharge your weapon, whatever's behind it will probably be penetrated, and whatever's behind that may very well be hit. Now, what are the odds? What are the odds that someone breaks into your house? Not only do you miss them, not only does it go through a wall, But it also so happens that while you missed what you were shooting at, you accidentally hit somebody else. The odds are low. It's not impossible. It has happened, but it hasn't happened very often. That's the other thing I want you to think about. Think about all the hype, the lies, and the hysteria that the gun grabbers put out every day. And how they always say, you're ten times more likely to kill a loved one with your gun than you are an intruder. Yet they have nothing to point to to back up that claim at all. There's no study that says that. There's no hard numbers that say that. There's no proof that says that. The only way you get to that is if you include things like suicides. That's where you get there. Or men that decide to kill all of their family and then blow their brains out, count all those bodies up, and say that that is a person that's more likely to end up dead uh, or killing someone else than they are to kill a bad guy. No, that's someone that wanted to murder their family. If they didn't have a gun to do it with, they would do it with a baseball bat while everybody slept or a butcher knife. It doesn't apply to the question. So, we know this. If it were even remotely common, like once a year, that somebody broke into a house, somebody shot at them, bullet went through and killed a baby lying in a crib, 
you would hear about it all the time. When you actually hear about something like that, it's usually a bunch of gangsters shooting at each other's houses and some poor person getting injured by it. Not a direct response to an imminent threat. I will put it to you this way. Should someone break into your home, try to kill you, try to rape your children, try to rape your wife, try to beat your wife senseless and rape her, and whatever else scum tend to do, your odds of repelling that attack and coming out with everybody in your family okay and alive are higher when you have that firearm than without it, and they're higher that it's going to work out for you then you're going to end up over-penetrating a wall and hurting somebody that you don't want to hurt. Odds are much higher and much more in your favor in that situation if you're armed and know what you're doing, that you're going to come out on top, that you're going to hurt an innocent bystander. Or, if you're going to come out on the bottom, let's say, it's probably not from over-penetration. All we can do in life is stack the deck in our favor as much as we can. So this quest for the magic round that will explode on a wall and kill a bad guy until they come up with better technology, it doesn't exist. It's not there. Frangible rifle rounds aren't going to make it happen. Uh, again, if you want to know more about this, go to Box of Truth, boxotruth.com, and you can see that these guys have shot everything, everything you can imagine at fake walls to determine whether or not it would work. And pretty much, if it kills people reliably, it goes through a wall. Let's take one more call. We'll wrap up for the day. Jack, riding Weatherford, Texas. I was asking about the uh, chemical you said was present in pecan trees that hinders the growth of other plants. And specifically, I wanted to know if that was affected by the leaves that were left on the ground and mulched in, or if... Uh, it was only the wood mulch if you used the pecan for that. And also, uh, GMOs in corn that's fed to deer here in Texas, uh, does that affect the health aspects of uh, wild game venison, or is it such a small amount? And if you have time, uh, is there a GMO-free wheat, or is our wheat GMO now also? Thanks for what you do, Jack. Man, talk about a guy that can function stack and get uh, three questions rolled up into one and do it under the time limit and be concise. I'll answer them all because of how good you did it. Um, the, the chemical in question is called juglone or juglone, uh, J-U-G-L-O-N-E. And it's present in all members of the juglone family, which would be your walnuts, Carpathian, English, black, etc., pecans, hickories, butternuts, uh, and several other trees are all part of this, this juglonus family. And they all produce varying amounts. The good news for those of you that like to grow pecans is they're probably the least toxic of the species that produce uh, juglone. And it's not poison, you'll die, it'll kill everything. It's an allopathic property. In other words, it inhibits the growth of other plants to give its species a competitive advantage. And there's many different plants that have different allopathic properties that exist, again, to, to create an environment where they can grow with less competition. That's, that's why it exists. As to where is it, where does it exist in... Uh, the tree, it exists in every single part of uh, the tree. 
It exists in the leaves, it exists in the stems, it exists in the wood, it exists in the roots, and it damn sure exists in the, uh, the, the nut shells and the nut covering. The greatest concentration is in the nut covering. So pecans, uh, black walnuts, etc. There's this like, um, this like sheath over top of the nut, right? And, and black walnuts, it's actually pretty useful stuff. When they turn all nasty and black and inky, you can use them to do things like browning your traps, right? So it's like, kind of like bluing a gun, but it's a brown color. And you can use it to, to brown, and it used to be used for people back in the days of flintlock muskets, etc., to brown the metal on the gun so that it would be less susceptible to rust. So that's where it's most prominent, but it's everywhere, and it's certainly in the leaves. Now, again, the pecan has the least amount. But if you think about any time you've ever seen a big pecan tree, there's generally not a whole bunch of stuff growing underneath it. So when we plant trees like pecans and walnuts, we need to think about that. And then what we need to do is turn our eye towards what will grow there and use those plantings to create a buffer for the juglone so that there's other plants there that can tolerate it. They take some of it up. And therefore, as we come out from under the canopy, other things can grow without being directly affected by uh, the juglone. So the best way you can find species that will do well for you in that situation is to just go to Google and put in juglone-tolerant plants, juglone-tolerant trees. You'll find a lot of options. Um, what you'll find, uh, you know, not very ironically, is that most of the species, hardwood species, that do well in the northeastern woods tend to tolerate juglone. So uh, black cherry is a, is a native cherry that does just fine next to a hickory or an oak or a pecan or a black walnut. And since there's so much black walnut natively growing in the northeast, you'd think that plants would have evolved to, uh, to, to, to work around this situation. So that's one. Pawpaw is another, and it's a great understory tree. So pawpaw, mulberry will do well. So with just that little gilding right there, if every time we plant a pecan, we plant maybe a couple mulberries with it that we prune a little bit underneath on the outskirts of the next major part of the canopy and some understory pawpaw and maybe some black cherry, which we could then, since the black cherry can be grafted on with some other cherry species, we could overgraft if we really wanted to try to make that productive. But one pecan tree produces so much, how much more do you really need to get out of it? What else will work in the understory there that will tolerate the juglone? Autumn olive. So if autumn olive will grow, then gumi would grow. So we could go with autumn olive or something even more palatable like gumi. And if we just create these buffers, so mulberry, pawpaw, gumi, autumn olive, black cherry, and then some vegetation, some, some ground cover that can tolerate it, we create a nice place where it gets picked up. Here's the thing, too. When you go in the tropics, a lot of these plants that are uh, juglone species, if they'll handle the conditions there, they don't have as big of an effect because the, the soils are shallower and less fertile and less stable, and the, the juglone washes out of them. So a lot of times people don't think they're going to have a problem with this, and all these plants seem to be doing really, really well, and then all of a sudden one day they start to have toxicity issues. That's just because the amount of the chemical has built up in the soil over time. So the best solution there, again, is a buffer of plants that can handle it so they're just taking it up like anything else going on with their lives. 
and processing it so that the other species don't have to deal with it so it doesn't uh, build up to excessive levels. There's also concerns, well, what if I want to grow vegetables? There's actually a lot of vegetables that could give a damn about juglum. They just don't care. Onions, beets, squash, melons, carrots, parsnips, uh, beans, corn, don't really care. Don't really care. Cherries, nectarines, plums, and peaches often will do just fine as well as quinces. So there's all kinds of things that we uh, can work with there. Moving back into shrubs, let's talk about some other shrubs. Um, hazelnut will we'll tolerate juglone uh, fairly well. Rose of Sharon, which is a hibiscus, very, very hardy. Uh, not much of a, a real useful uh, hibiscus as far as like for making tea or whatever, but a great pollinator attractor will work. American holly uh, will work. Uh, so if American holly would work, then it's probably the case uh, that you could use Yapon holly, which is a great uh, plant for bees and a great plant for making tea that's actually pretty high in uh, caffeine. So that can be done as well. Your juniper species uh, would do just fine. Sumac. Uh, so sumac is very, very prevalent in the Northeast, so obviously something that has worked out how to deal with this. Uh, so both uh, sumac and smooth sumac. Currants, black raspberries. I didn't say blackberry. Blackberry doesn't like it, but black raspberry, elderberry. Elderberry being something, maples. So there's just this whole world. So we, we could have annuals mixed in corn, beans, parsnips, and carrots. Uh, we could have a Rosa Sharon. And if we, if we build guilds that are juglone tolerant around the juglone species, uh, as we come a little further out from that belt, we can go to the non-tolerant things and they'll do just fine. I have to tell you that my grandparents had three very big black walnuts. And black walnut has a lot more of this stuff than pecan does. Right around their garden, not over the garden, but right around the garden. Everybody's like, oh my God, it'll never work. And man, and we grew peppers and tomatoes like coming out of our ears. And nightshades like peppers and tomatoes do not tolerate juglone. Now, what did we do though? The way the garden was laid out, there was a big giant row of corn on the bottom side of it, on the south facing side, um, that buffered two of those trees. And then on the other side was where we grew first a row of beans, and then we grew a row of um, of squash, uh, and then there was a row of cucumbers, which are nah, one way or the other a little bit, and then was our peppers, and then was our tomatoes. So we did have another way of creating a buffer belt. So you don't have to overthink this, but... Again, and the nice thing is if you just say, well, what are all my shrubs and trees and bushes and plants tolerant to juglone, and you have a pecan, and you're saying, well, what kind of guild do I plant with that pecan, there's your list. Start picking stuff out of it. So here what we've done, pawpaws and mulberries and autumn olives being our primary buffer around the couple pecans that we've put in. Okay, next, GMO corn, when it's being fed to deer, and for those that are not from states where it's legal to feed deer, this might be a foreign concept, but in states like Texas, uh, a lot of places, especially hunting ranches, have feeders on timers. And every day in the morning and in the evening, the feeder goes, and all this corn goes flying all over the place. Deer run in. And the main reason that's done is from a hunting ranch's perspective, 
It makes their hunters very successful. It also gives them an opportunity for their guides to look over a deer and decide whether they want that deer taken out or not. And in many instances, how much it's going to cost that guy if he wants to shoot that deer. Um, a lot of people say it's not real hunting. I wouldn't say it's not real hunting. I would say it's not as challenging as a lot of forms of hunting that I prefer. It's shooting a wild animal. And making it easier isn't necessarily making it not hunting. Uh, I know some people will hold their breath on this, but that's probably because you live where you do and it's not legal there. And if it was, you might find yourself pretty willing to do it. Uh, there's a lot of reasons to feed deer, too, besides just shooting them under a feeder. Uh, we would do it just to keep them in the area. We also used it uh, to keep them away from certain areas. So if they're fed in a certain area, they're less likely to do things like eat all the tops off your beets because they're being led by another pathway. Um, it also is great for surveying your deer, knowing what you have. Just because you have feeders doesn't mean you have to hunt directly under them. doesn't mean you have to run them during the season. So just before anybody gets all uh, ass in a wad over feeding, uh, and again, you probably live in a place that's a lot different than a lot of places where feeding's legal and things are a lot different. And some of these places, people have to drive 10 hours before they get to somewhere they can hunt. They don't even leave their state. So, and they're out on an arroyo in open territory, and it's a totally different scenario. So just let it be what it is. But if, if deer are fed corn, I've just talked about deer eating corn and soy. So deer in farm country, my view is I'd prefer the deer didn't have GMO. But I think the, the venison that comes from a deer that happens to get some of its brows from a feeder and, and all the rest of it's making its living off the land is probably a hell of a lot healthier uh, than just about anything you'd ever buy in a store. And I don't really worry about it, and I don't think you should either. And on that note, I would rather eat an animal that ate GMO corn than eat the GMO corn. I'd rather do neither, but if I have to pick between the two, everything has filtering capacities. There's also some bioaccumulation concerns there, but uh, I think you can do much better for yourself eating animals that have had eaten some GMO than eating the GMO directly. Um, anyway, that's just my thoughts on that. I don't worry about it. Now, wheat. There is no GMO wheat. There is no GMO wheat. There is no GMO wheat yet. Sort of, kind of, but there is no GMO wheat. There is no approved genetically modified wheat, barley, rye, or any other cereal grain other than corn, which you could make a case is not a cereal grain. Okay, There's GMO corn. There's GMO soy. There's no GMO sorghum yet. None of those things that are bread-like cereal grains, uh, triticale, is not GMO. It's not they've never done it. It's not they can't do it. It's not they won't want to do it. It hasn't been approved. So if you're eating bread made with wheat flour, whole wheat, white, otherwise, but doesn't have any corn or soy in it, it might not be good for you, but it's not GMO. So stop worrying about wheat, barley, and rye being GMO. They're not. So your beer is not GMO. It may have all kinds of toxins in it, but it's not GMO. And that means when animals are being fed... Uh, a ration and the, the, the sorghum, the wheat, the rye, the barley that's part of that ration is non-GMO, even if it's conventional. Just a final thought there. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution.